Hello and welcome on behalf of CME Outfitters. I would like to welcome and thank you for joining us for the second in a series of four CMEO snacks titled Disrupted Sleep, Quality of Life in Patients with Narcolepsy. This CMEO snack series is supported by an independent medical education grant from Jazz Pharmaceuticals. I'm Richard Bogan. I'm an associate clinical professor at the University of South Carolina School of Medicine in Columbia, South Carolina, and the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston, South Carolina. I'm also the principal of Bogan Sleep Consultants, LLC in Columbia, South Carolina. I'm joined today by my distinguished colleague, Dr. Anne-Marie Morse. Hi, I'm Anne-Marie Morse. I'm an associate professor at the Geisner Commonwealth School of Health Sciences. I'm also the director of child neurology and pediatric sleep medicine at Geisner Janet Weiss Children's Hospital. Thank you for being here today. And to frame the discussion today, let me review our learning objective. Our goal is that after this CME snack, you'll be able to analyze the impact of narcolepsy and its symptoms on the quality of life and functioning of patients and their families and caregivers. So, uh, Anne-Marie, as we know, narcolepsy can be a very difficult disease to manage as patients oftentimes don't recognize it as narcolepsy, one, which makes detection more difficult. Dr. Morris, can you paint a picture for our audience of what narcolepsy looks like in patients? Sure. So I think it's amazing that there is this really great acronym, CHESS, that is easy to remember. The reason it's important for us to really become familiar with what these PENCAD symptoms of narcolepsy is, is because there's studies that have demonstrated we don't do a great job of understanding what they look like, not only in sleep medicine, but also in the primary care setting. In fact, in 2014, there was a study that evaluated this and found that only 22% of sleep doctors were able to name these five symptoms. In addition, only 7% of primary care physicians were able to identify these symptoms. If we don't know what something looks like, we're never going to identify it. So what does narcolepsy look like? Well, number one, they may have symptoms of cataplexy. Cataplexy is considered the most specific symptom in narcolepsy, present in about 70% of people who do have narcolepsy. So when I say that it's the most specific symptom, it means that if I identify features that look like cataplexy, it really likely is narcolepsy until proven otherwise. What can cataplexy look like? Well, most typically we define this as transient or brief episodes of loss of tone or weakness. However, it's important to know that that weakness can be either a generalized event where we may have full collapse to ground, but more commonly, it's actually partial cataplexy, where you might have a head drop, things dropping out of my hands, my knees buckling. Very frequently, people may self-describe as I'm just clumsy or my sleepiness makes me a little bit more clumsy. It is also important to specifically call out that in 2011, Dr. Plotzi in Italy published a beautiful paper in Brain that demonstrated that in pediatric narcolepsy, we can also see active motor phenomena, meaning that it may look like eyebrow raising, tongue thrusting, even abnormal movements that may be characterized as a tick. So what else may be present in narcolepsy? Well, other REM dissociative features. So cataplexy is considered a REM dissociative feature because REM sleep, we tend to have this atonia, and we think that that's what is driving a lot of that cataplexy. Other things can include sleep-related hallucinations, as I'm falling asleep or waking up, hearing things, seeing things, feeling things that aren't really there. This could include things like seeing some shadows or a formed individual at the end of our bed, hearing someone calling my name or potentially rattling at the doorknob or knocking on the window, or even something like something's touching me or things crawling on me. 
Other REM-dissociative features include sleep paralysis. This is where I'm experiencing as I'm falling asleep or waking up, feeling frozen or stuck, as well as having symptoms of excessive daytime sleepiness and disturbed nocturnal sleep or sleep disruption. Excessive daytime sleepiness is the most sensitive symptom in narcolepsy, present in 100% of people who have narcolepsy. However, clearly there are other things that can present with excessive daytime sleepiness. A major take-home point is that if you're seeing someone who is sleepy, it's important to look at all different causes of it, but make sure you're thinking about narcolepsy as one of the causes that could be present. Yeah, you know, I'm impressed. Um, these individuals have state instability, so they kind of oscillate both awake and asleep. So the patients are pretty profoundly sleepy. So in the, wake to, in the daytime when we should be awake, they're kind of oscillating in and out, in and out. And they do the same thing at night many times. I mean, probably close to 70% of patients, as, as you said, um, really have disturbed nocturnal sleep. And a lot of that can be related to just spontaneous or the REM dissociative symptoms, the vivid dreams, the paralysis, and the hallucinations that might occur in these individuals. The other thing that impresses me is 30% of the population is sleepy, the adult population. And narcolepsy is relatively rare. And having said that, let's take a closer look at the prevalence of narcolepsy in the patient journey. And we have the Nexus Narcolepsy Registry, which is a registry that collects survey data from patients with narcolepsy. Can you tell us about that? Sure. So in order to better understand what a patient journey looks like for an individual who has narcolepsy, registry data is tremendously informative because it gives us some real-world evidence of what do things look like over time. And so what we do know is that based on this registry data, there does seem to be a prevalence of about 25 to 60 cases per 100,000. Most typically, we say it's probably about 1 in 2,000 individuals who may be suffering with narcolepsy. However, we also still do think that probably about 50% of people are walking around undiagnosed. Based on the registry data, it does seem as though that this may be a female predominant disorder. Now, what's interesting, if you look at most published literature, frequently is referenced that this occurs in a one-to-one -one ratio in men and women. However, this registry data is countering that suggestion. And unfortunately, we're already seeing the burden that is associated with it, where we're seeing a quarter of individuals with narcolepsy suffering from unemployment. The patient journey is a long and arduous one. We see that it's very common that individuals may be having symptoms around 18 years of age. This really is similar to prior data that we've had, where it really is showing that it's a really pediatric or adolescent onset, um, typically around 15 to 16. So really, it's still in line with that. However, you can see that there's a delay to actually being identified and even time to first consultation. So although the median age of onset was 18, the first consultation isn't occurring until about 26, and then even further delay to the time of diagnosis, which is around 30 years old. Again, in line with some prior um, information that we've seen, where it can be an eight to 10 year di up to diagnosis. And we have seen that women tend to be even more delayed, with some studies suggestion up to 19 years in delay. The top three symptoms leading to first consultation are ones that we really should pay attention to. So we've already identified that excessive daytime sleepiness is present in 100% of people who have narcolepsy. And so it's not surprising that excessive sleepiness is one of the top reasons. However, other reasons may be ones that sometimes are dismissed and not really considered as possibly being related to a sleep disorder. So things like trouble concentrating or cognitive dysfunction or per school or work performance. 
I can say to you, Rick, that as a neurologist who also does sleep medicine, very frequently I tell my residents and medical students where I'm training that patients who have narcolepsy are more commonly encountered in my neurology practice coming in for those latter two complaints than I do see in my sleep practice when they're coming in for excessive daytime sleepiness. Yeah, it reminds me of my biggest referrer, and I've, I've told you this before, was uh, a an expert in attention deficit disorder, and sleepy people have attention problems. Now, some of them do have ADHD, but but um, the point is, is that sometimes, particularly in the young individuals, they don't really know that it's sleepiness, or quantitatively, they don't know how sleepy they are, so... Um, it, it can be difficult to diagnose unless you really dig in because it's, again, relatively rare and there are a lot of sleepy people out there. But um, you, you've given us a great uh, discussion on the symptoms and the demographics of patients with narcolepsy. Now let's discuss the impact on quality of life. We know the disease can have a significant negative impact on patients, especially in children with narcolepsy. Can you tell us about that? Sure. I think it really is important to, again, reflect on the fact that this typically is a pediatric onset disease that's being recognized in adulthood. However, many times patients may not be coming to attention because they're not seeking out health care until there actually is some sort of deficit in their life. However, because of these delays and because of how sleepiness and the symptoms of narcolepsy can be so pervasive into every area, we do see extraordinarily compromised quality of life. So we see that there is a decreased quality of life. We also see a decrease in vitality or energy. We then see this spilling over to there being a reduced sense of um, self-worth or well-being, as well as poor self-image. It's not uncommon that when you encounter individuals who have narcolepsy and hadn't been diagnosed yet, that very frequently they start to embody those symptoms as a part of their character trait. I'm just lazy or I'm not able to do things like other people are able to do. And so it becomes challenging because it feels as though that they're just not good enough to be able to accomplish these things. And although that is definitely not true, it is a medical disorder that needs treatment. These unfortunately result in many, many compromised self-esteem issues and then starts to also result in some marginalization, resulting in fewer friends as well as fewer leisure activities or extracurriculars like their peers would. So unfortunately, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy of ongoing accumulation of difficulties in social aspects of life. Yeah, I think it's worth, you know, I usually tell my patients, your brain is okay. It's just a sleepy brain. The brain's having trouble keeping it awake. And um, and the other is it's not a personality issue. It's bi- it's biology. So those points are really well taken. What about the adult population? I know there's a delay in diagnosis. And quite frankly, most of the time, these children or adolescents are adults before they're diagnosed. What, did, what is the impact in the adult population? So we can see that when we look at what the quality of life can be in individuals with narcolepsy in adulthood, we're again seeing the same type of theme occur, where individuals who have narcolepsy are two to four times greater risk of a compromised health-related quality of life. They also may be more likely to experience long-term disability because of being unable to perform at the same level of, of their age-matched peers. We see an increased degree of absenteeism, unable to show up for the things that they want to or value to be at. 
And when they do, there's decreased presenteeism. I'm physically there, but mentally, cognitively, emotionally unable to attend at the capacity I would like to. It's not stopped there. We also see that there is a higher healthcare spend related to increased hospitalizations, ED visits, as well as traditional healthcare professional visits. And that is further compounded by increased likelihood of other medical and psychiatric comorbidities. Unfortunately, it's not just the individual who has narcolepsy who's affected. We also see that individuals who have narcolepsy, their families may also be affected. In childhood and in adulthood, we see this. In childhood, we see that siblings are compromising what they may want to do in order to accommodate the difficulties that their sibling is having. Parents also may be missing work because they need to be able to be a caregiver. When we get to adulthood, we sometimes see this same type of caregiver burden being taken on by not only the children of an individual who may have narcolepsy, but also a significant other. And so it really does permeate across a family and unfortunately is one that sometimes is overlooked. Yeah, it, it impresses me that um, patients with narcolepsy look normal. I mean, they are normal. I mean, they're sleepy, but and sometimes the family members just don't understand. I mean, they're like, why can't you do this? Or that. And so the impact in terms of quality of life, mood, and executive function, social interaction, workplace, yeah, I mean, you've explained that very well. What we also know is that patients with narcolepsy, and particularly type one, where they, we know they have low orexin levels, but this, this physiology of orexin being the neuropeptide that controls sleep wake processes and hypothalamic pituitary axis, and so many things that happen in our circadian process as we're awake in the day and sleep at night, uh, we're beginning to understand that there are comorbidities. Can you discuss those? Sure. So I think it really is important that if we're going to talk about taking care of an individual with narcolepsy, we need to take care of the whole individual. And so there have been studies that have been done utilizing health claims data and doing an analysis of individuals who have narcolepsy compared to um, case-matched controls or individuals without narcolepsy. Trying to better understand during their medical journey, is there a higher likelihood of them experiencing or encountering other diagnoses as we're evaluating claims data? And so based on some studies that have been done that have looked at overall medical burden and specifically looking at potential for cardiovascular risk, what is being suggested is that there's an increased likelihood of things like psychiatric comorbidity, mood disorders, depressive disorders, anxiety disorders. As we've just described, with all the compromised quality of life, self-esteem issues, potentially interpersonal relationship difficulties, it's not by surprise that there would be these types of emotional challenges that one may encounter. And so it is important to recognize those and consider them when you're treating an individual. Other things that may be seen include other um, uh, sleep disorders, such as sleep apnea, and it is important for us to think about that, especially as a sleep doctor, because of the fact that you may diagnose that first. So thinking about that persistent sleepiness in someone who has sleep apnea is really important, especially recognizing that other risk factors can be present, like obesity. Now, seeing that there are these other medical comorbidities like sleep apnea and obesity, it does make sense for us to look at cardiovascular risk because of the fact that we already know that those are independent risk factors. And so trying to understand the relationship between narcolepsy and cardiovascular health becomes really important. Based on this insurance claims data, what we're seeing is that there may be this increased risk for things like stroke, 
heart failure, and other cardiovascular disease. And so therefore, it is really important to think about the whole person and consider these other cardiovascular components, as well as other modifiable risk factors like sleep apnea and obesity. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Morris. I'm, this has been a wonderful program in this series, and I really hope everyone in the audience learned a lot today. Let's summarize with our SMART goals, specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, and timely. That is what we hope that our audience will take from this presentation to apply to your practice. Identify characteristics specific to narcolepsy in patients complaining of sleep dysfunction during clinical visits. Remember that 30% of people who are sleepy. Recognize the prevalence of narcolepsy and quality of life in patients with narcolepsy in order to better diagnose narcolepsy in your practice. And utilize data regarding comorbidities in patients with narcolepsy to better detect patients with narcolepsy during screening practices. Now, this CMEO snack is one of a four-part series. We hope that you'll take advantage of all of the short and focused activities in the series. So I, I really appreciate you all attending, and I especially thank Dr. Anne-Marie Morris for joining us today. Thank you for having me. This was a pleasure.